Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, as we sing that song, uh, Lord, it touches our heart. Indeed, Lord, your praise will forever be on our lips. To those who have grasped and understood and received just your bountiful love. Lord, we can't even begin to comprehend the depth of your love for us and what you have accomplished for us in your work at the cross. God, indeed, it evokes from us once we understand the mystery and the power of what you've done. It evokes in us, Lord, just a pure, humble praise. And God, it's with that praise in our hearts that we look to you this morning and we ask you and invite you to teach us by your word. We pray this all in the risen and powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is great to be back with you here in Lake Mary. I always love uh, coming and being a part of the worship service and a uh, real joy to be able to have this opportunity to uh, look to God's word together uh, as we study Ephesians uh, chapter 6. You know, I was driving over, um, coming all the way from Lake Nona. I get teased. I, I always mention how long that is. Um, and it's a wonderful drive uh, coming up. I'm going over Lake Jessup, and the sun's coming up, and it's reflecting off the lake there. It's very, very beautiful. Uh, I had the, the radio on, though, and it was interesting to me because listening, uh, obviously the topics that I was listening to, there was two or three of them, is just so much trouble going on in the world today. Um, and, and really what was driving that, and you'd think after 7,000 years of recorded human history, we might be making some progress in these areas. But obviously we're not listening to the news. Things like hatred, strife, discord because of things like race, things like gender, social, economic differences, they're just used so much in our culture today to divide. And if you've been with us and you've been studying the book of Ephesians, it makes a very powerful claim that because of what Christ has done for us, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of your social economic status, Christ has done something for us. God has done something for us through the work of Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves. He's made us one. He's changed the human heart so we're able to see each other differently. And we're able to love each other differently without those barriers because in Christ, those barriers have been taken away. What a powerful message. And that truly is the essence by which we can change the things that society has used to divide and even subjugate peoples have now been made new in Christ. It's important that we grasp this lesson as we look to today's um, message especially. And the reason why it's important is it changes how we act if we get put in positions of leadership and power. It changes our view of leadership. It changes how we function. But not only does it change how we function in leadership, it changes how we function in followership. We too will want the best for those who lead us and we'll want to serve them and we'll want their good. And this is what we've been looking at these last three weeks, is how our relationship with Christ, how what he's done for us at the cross changes us and therefore changes relationships like husbands and wives, which Zach covered a couple of weeks ago, and like children and parents, which OJ went over last week. Today we're going to be looking at principles uh, for us for the employer and employee relationship. 
Now, Paul knows that abuses abound when one person gets into a position of power over another. It's really a petri dish, if you will, for growing these sorts of abuses and problems. It's just in human nature. And it starts real early. I mean, we see it as kids. Unfortunately, too many young people have really had to encounter that neighborhood bully. In my neighborhood growing up, the undisputed champ was Frank Mercandante. I grew up in a little Italian enclave of East Detroit, Michigan. And, uh, and there, my buddies' names were Joe Capolo, Joe Bucciolato, this is my favorite, Jimmy Benacquisto, uh, Tony Liuzzo. I mean, these were my friends growing up. And then there was Jeff Kern. <laughs> <laughs> these guys, I don't know what it is about the Italian blood. They were shaving by age 12. They had muscles. They were just ripped. And I was the skinny little kid um, who hadn't quite grown up yet. In, in 10th grade, I was five foot three. Obviously, I grew. Um, I was so skinny that my nickname was Bones growing up. Uh, a few years ago, they stopped calling me that. I'm not sure why, but um, anyway. Uh, Frank was the biggest and the baddest of them all. Uh, he had a nasty disposition, but he was somewhat of a benevolent dictator. If you didn't cross him, you were okay. Uh, I remember we'd go out to recess and we'd play home run derby. And basically the rules of the game are if you make an out, you give up the bat and somebody else gets to play. But if you hit a home run, you keep going. Well, Frank, he'd hit lots of home runs, but he'd make lots of outs and he'd never give the bat to anybody else unless he wanted to. And you don't take the bat from Frank. Right? He's just that kind of kid. Well, even though I was the small, skinny kid, I was also wiry and pretty athletic. Um, and so... Um, I got into boxing, of all things, if you can imagine. My dad bought my brother and I some boxing gloves. We had a speed bag, and we had a heavy bag. And, uh, and so I grew up in the era of Muhammad Ali uh, fighting Joe Frazier in those three classic battles. It was a great time to be a fan of boxing. And I just was mesmerized by Ali. I mean, how he could just float around, and he'd throw those just lightning quick, stinging jabs with just precision accuracy. It was just an amazing thing to watch. So I tried to emulate Muhammad Ali, and I actually got halfway decent at it. And uh, so after a football practice in late August, it was pretty hot. We had the football team over to my house for a pool party. Uh, one of the guys had this bright idea. We're going to have a boxing tournament on the seventh grade football team. And so even though I was the little guy, I ended up winning the tournament for the team. So no sooner was I basking in my championship belt, you know, in, champ, in the glory of being champ, that I was uh, no sooner having a good time with that that I heard from Frank Mercandante. Frank didn't like a seventh grade champion. He was in eighth grade. So he challenged me to a boxing match in Tim Lastman's basement. That's where we would box. And I was like, oh, no, I can't. Well, I can't say no. I can't say yes. I'll get killed. What do I do? So I said yes. So we're going to do a boxing match to Lastman's basement. Was I scared? You bet I was scared. But there was just a part of me that thought, well, maybe, just maybe, I'll get in a lucky hit like I do with my older brother. My brother's much bigger. My brother's much older. And he's got to be a lot meaner than Frank. So maybe, you know, maybe, just maybe, I'll get through. Well, so we strapped on the gloves. Someone does a proverbial ding, ding. I started dancing to my left. I like going to my left. And I'd throw out a couple flicking jabs and wham! I literally saw stars. It went white. I felt like my jaw separated from my head and then snapped back. And I got woozy and I slunk down to my knees. And I learned an early lesson. Don't fight the bully. <laughs> People with power. How do we handle that? Well, like I said, it starts early. 
People will misuse power. Paul knows that. And he's saying, I've got a different standard for my leaders. This is what God is telling us. It's characterized by the leader thinking differently about themselves and thinking differently about the people that they're leading, knowing that God's character has been from the beginning, that he is the defender of the oppressed. He's the advocate of the marginalized. And he wants his leaders to have the same heart that he has to lead not for themselves, but for the sake of others. So let's begin in today's passage. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to um, Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to look at this relationship where power um, really comes into play in our work environments. But let's start in verse 5. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Well, we got to hit the pause button here. I'm sorry. Um, I thought we were talking about employers employees, right? This says slaves. What's going on here? Well, you'll see there's principles here that we are going to be helpful for us. But for years, uh, it would bother me when I would be sitting where you're sitting and I'm hearing a message and it's clearly about slaves and they're just kind of going right to the employer-employee thing. And so there's some profound questions underlying this that we just need to address. We just can't skirt by them. Does the Bible condone slavery? And why doesn't the Bible condemn it? I mean, why, why is it in here? Why isn't God just coming right out and saying, this is wrong? Well, there's two answers, a simple answer and a complex answer. The simple answer is he does hate it. God hates slavery. And it's not part of his plan. The complex answer um, really is that there's two types of slavery. This is written in a different time, a different context. And back in Paul's day and in the Old Testament times that preceded that, we had a spectrum of slavery from the benign all the way over to the egregious. So let me describe that. Um, certainly the Ephesian Christians were facing the egregious kind, but they were also facing the benign kind. The egregious kind is what comes to mind when we hear the word slavery. It's slavery in its most evil and horrific expression. It's inhumane. It sees other human beings as less than human. It's totally void of dignity. It can be brutal and cruel. It sees other people as inferior to the one who's in power. It subjects them to often dehumanizing and painful abuses. And you need to know that this type of action is indefensible and it is an abomination to God. If you need a rough translation for abomination, it makes his heart sick. It makes his stomach just churn. This is the egregious form of slavery that our culture has known. But in ancient times, among the nation of Israel, another form existed as well. And this type of slavery actually was intended to be a form of blessing because it provided for the poor's sustenance. You see, in Paul's day, these cultures, 60 to upwards of 90% of many of these cultures, people lived in poverty. There was no social security system back then. And so this was actually a very kind way for people to care for the poor. It became a form of employment, if you will. They were more like servants, would be kind of a parallel to our culture today. And there were laws in the Old Testament that actually 
provided for and ensured their fair treatment. You see, God wanted the Israelites to see those who were in these serving positions as co-heirs of the family of God, created in the image of God, just like every other brother and sister in the nation of Israel, and God's laws were there to protect them. He even went so far as to command that they be released from slavery every seven years. And so we see this benevolent aspect to it. And these laws flowed from God's character and his overarching commitment and his relentless passion to care for the oppressed. In the book of Psalms, it says God is a stronghold to the oppressed. When you hear the word stronghold, it's the place you would run for protection. And God is that place we run to for protection when we are facing oppression in our lives. And he, in all of his strength, will be our defender. That's what he's saying. In Ephesians, the Christians would likely be encountering both forms of slavery, the benign and the egregious. And Paul's goal in this passage that we're studying was to pastor them. He wanted to care for them. He wanted to help them bear up under a difficult situation. And in teaching his people how to submit to authority, it doesn't mean that that authority is morally approved of by God. He's caring for the individual. The great abolitionist who gave his life's work to the abolishment of slavery in England and ultimately in Western culture was a devout, devout Christian. He knew the Bible and he knew it well. William Wilberforce um, knew from the scriptures that God hates oppression and he's a defender of those who cannot defend themselves. From the book of Exodus, he knows that those who deal in slave trading God said that they should be killed. It was a capital offense in the nation of Israel. Paul said of slave traders, they are immoral and they are outside of the kingdom of God. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote an address specifically to the slaves. And he said, if you can get free, go ahead and get free. And then we see this letter that to me is just gives us such insight into what was going on in Paul's development of these young Christians. It's a letter to this man named Philemon. It's actually a book in the Bible. It's a one-page letter, a one-chapter book, uh, directly after Hebrews. You can read it later. And Philemon was someone that Paul led to Christ. He actually encountered him and led him to Christ so that Philemon became a Christian. He was wealthy enough to have servants, and one of them, his name was Onesimus. And Onesimus had decided that he's going to escape and get free and run from his master, Philemon. Well, Onesimus encounters Paul. Guess what happened? Just like most people that encountered Paul, he became a Christian. All right, and he became someone who became very dear to Paul. So Paul said, Onesimus, you got to get this right with Philemon. So he sends him back to Philemon with a letter from Paul. And in the letter, when Philemon got it, he wanted these two to be reconciled. It says, please, Philemon, receive him no longer as a slave, but as your fellow brother in Christ. And if he owes you anything, put it on my account. And just remember, you owe me your very life as well. And here we see this beautiful insight into really setting up for us the passage that we're studying today, how Paul is helping these new Christians think differently about their relationships, mutuality as co-members of the same body of Christ. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read this passage and let's look at the principles that we can learn for our context as employers, employees. Slaves, 
Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, do the will of God from the heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. So that's the section that Paul is writing to the slaves. And there's some principles here. It's not a one-to-one because their context was different. So we'll, we'll draw out the principles for us. Did you notice that three times in the passage he says, just as you would Christ, serve them, as servants of Christ, and serve them as if you were serving the Lord. Here's the principle for you and me. The first principle is this, serve your boss as if he or she were Jesus. Let me say it again. Serve your boss as if he or she were Jesus. Now you might say, Jeff, you don't know my boss. <laughs> They're nothing like Jesus. All right? They don't act like Jesus. I know, I've been there. Happens all the time. The context of this passage isn't that you've got a boss who acts like Jesus. All right? The context is likely that they're not an effective leader. All right? And this is where we need God's help. I remember I was pastoring a church in West Lafayette, Indiana, and a good friend of mine who was in the church, he gave me a call. He was just distraught one night. Um, he was a PhD candidate in biochemistry at Purdue University. And he called me and just was in tears. I rushed over to his house, and he was at the end of his rope. You see, he had done more than enough to obtain his PhD. Normally in his field, if you publish one or two papers, you get your PhD. Mike had published seven papers, four of them major papers, and he still wouldn't give it to him. He said, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm living in this married student housing with roaches. I don't have enough money to feed my family. I've got a son now, and he just... He's just the end of his rope. What do we do? We turned to this passage and some other passages, and we just talked and we prayed. And I said, Mike, I don't understand why God's allowing this trial. I know it's difficult. But keep leaning in. Keep showing up each day and keep treating your boss as if he was Jesus. Keep acting the way you know God would want you to act in that very difficult situation. And he did. It didn't happen immediately, but eventually he did get his PhD. He's gone on to do some unbelievable things. Um, he literally is one of the best, if not top of his field. Let me just put it that way. Um, he developed Lipitor. You may have heard that. He was the lead scientist on that, largest selling drug in the history of the world. And uh, since then has gone on and has had four other major drugs either in the process or having obtained FDA approval. It's just amazing what he's done. Um, God's honored him. Now, you know, you may not go on to change the world through biochemistry, and maybe nobody will know ever what you've done, but let me tell you this, it matters to God. And if you do this, God's gonna be faithful to you as you're faithful to God. Respond to your bosses if he or she was Jesus. A second principle that I see is, is if this is true, and we're serving our bosses if they're Jesus, guess what? I'll wanna give my best. I wanna, I wanna work in a way that honors God because I'm giving it to, to Jesus, right? And so if I have that mindset, well, I latched onto a phrase early on that helped me think about this. Um, here's the phrase, you ready? Excellence honors God and inspires people. Boy, has that one helped me a lot. Excellence honors God 
and inspires people. You see, your work in the Bible is actually considered by God a form of worship. You may not have known that. In Genesis chapter 1, when God said to Adam and Eve to fill the earth, to rule over it, and to subdue it, he's putting them in charge as stewards of his creation. And this is what the theologians call the cultural mandate, that, that work was actually something God gave us. Some people think that work is the curse, right? No, work's not the curse. The curse happens in Genesis chapter 3. Work was given in Genesis chapter 1, all right? The curse is just that work is going to be... Um, more futile. It's going to be easy for it to feel like we're just kind of spinning our wheels. But actually, work is a gift from God. Could you imagine if we didn't have anything to do? <laughs> yeah, that'd be great for a week, for a month, maybe even a year. Right, but eventually, we'd get bored. So this is part of God's plan. It's actually a gift. And when he placed Adam in the garden to work it, according to Genesis 2.15, the word work has the same root word as worship, abad. So God sees work as actually our worship, and it just makes sense. We're stewards of his creation. He's saying, here it is. Take it. Bring my kingdom. Bring my excellence to this space. And as you do, you can offer that to me as an act of your love for me, as an act of your worship. You see, your work matters to God. And I don't care if you're developing a world-changing drug or you're sweeping a floor. It matters to God. And you can bring excellence. You can bring God. You can bring his kingdom to that space first thing tomorrow. There's a number of children in the room here today. You can honor God by giving your best to respond to your teacher and to treat them as if they were Jesus and to give your best and really working hard at the homework and the studies that you have. We can all apply this to our lives. In my class called The Dynamics of Spiritual Formation, I had the opportunity to teach it out here. We go over this in great detail. And I like to say in that class, work is not a spiritual black hole where nothing is going on for God. Do you realize that if you work for 40 years and you put in about 40 hours a week, you'll spend almost 100,000 hours of your life at work? That's a lot of time. It's the best effort we give, getting ready for, driving to, pouring out ourselves at, driving home from work. And too many Christians that I know have no clue what God's doing there, right? They think I gotta go home and pick up the little pieces of what's left over of my tiredness and somehow go do something meaningful for God. That's just wrong thinking. 100,000 hours of opportunity to honor God, 100,000 hours of opportunity to influence people for Christ. God gave us work. It matters to him. Use it as he sees it as an opportunity to worship him, starting first thing tomorrow morning. So our work honors God. I think of a famous story from John F. Kennedy. He's visiting NASA's headquarters for the first time in 1961, uh, and he encountered a janitor who was mopping the floor. And President Kennedy went up to him and said, so what is it that you do here? He said, I'm putting a man on the moon. I just love that. You see, it's about carrying the right perspective into our work, and that perspective is we're worshiping God and honoring him. But not only does our excellence honor God, it inspires people. I've seen this time and again. There's a proverb that says, do you see someone who is skilled in their work? They will stand before kings. They will not stand before obscure people. 
You see, the greatest impact that you can have, I believe one of the greatest is at work. The way you work, the passion you bring, the excellence that you bring, the way you treat people. Remember, as Kaylee mentioned a couple of weeks ago, OJ again last week, and we want you to think about it again this week, people are watching. And as they do, they're deciding something about God. I've seen this time and again in the marketplace, and probably so have you. I've seen people who put it out there. They're a Christian. I think that's a good thing. But then the way they work, they show up late. They linger long off for, off for coffee. They, they don't give their best effort. And you can tell the way they talk about people isn't good. And it doesn't make their faith attractive. And it doesn't make people want to know more about their God. In fact, it probably reinforces some of the negative things they already think. But then I've seen some people who bring diligence and bring excellence and other people know that they're a Christ follower and they look at their lives and they go, wow, there's something about that person that I wanna know more about. The way they work, the way they treat their coworkers, their bosses, the people who are underneath them, the way they treat their vendors and their suppliers and their clients, the way they greet the secretary and the receptionist when they walk in. There's something different about that person and I wanna know more. Who are they? Who's this God they claim to know? It happens. I've had the privilege in my workplace to lead a number of people to Christ. A couple of them were my bosses. And I'd say I learned that through a guy by the name of Roger Imason. When I was the tender age of 24 years old, I got to work for Roger. He was the managing partner of a regional accounting firm. And he hired me as the director of administration, put my office right next to his. We went out to breakfast every Monday morning for a couple of hours. And I got to see up close and personal what this looks like. Oh, my goodness. Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, uh, talks about what he calls the level five leader. I got, to, I got to know one as a dear friend. You see, level five leaders, they're not the show horse. Hey, look at me. They're the plow horse. The work ethic of this man was unparalleled. Unbelievable. And he had what Collins calls this weird juxtaposition between incredible personal humility. It was genuine. I saw it. He had one of the most tender consciences of anybody I've ever met. This incredible personal humility juxtaposed with this intense professional will. This man was committed to excellence. He demanded it of himself and he demanded it of, of us that worked for him. And it was a beautiful thing. He worked in a way that he knew my work is here to honor God. And I loved it. I had a man come up to me, one of our large clients. He's the head of a construction company. And he said, Jeff, um, I know Roger's a Christian. Uh, I'm not yet a Christian, but I want you to know something. This is a quote. I would give a left arm to be in your position to learn from that man. You see, excellence honors God and inspires people. People are watching and they're deciding something about God. Let's now turn to what God says to those in positions of power. Verse nine, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Interesting. In other words, everything that I've said up until now about slaves and their relation to Jesus and you, treat them in the same way. In other words, treat those who work for you as if they were Jesus. Do not threaten them, since you know that he is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism or partiality with him. So, let me ask you, what do you do with power? 
Now, some of you might think, Jeff, I'm not in a leadership position. My business card doesn't say supervisor or manager. In fact, I don't even have a business card. I'd like to get one one day. All right, I'm not in a position of power. How does this apply to me? I want you to know that the best definition of leadership I've ever encountered is this. It's one word, influence. All right, influence. John Maxwell likes to say, he who thinks he leadeth with no one following is merely taking a walk. <laughs> I like that. You see, leadership is influence, and all of us can have influence no matter what our position is. Remember, as OJ mentioned last week, title's the lowest level of leadership. When you have to lead from position or power, you're at the lowest level. And that's why Paul says, give up threatening. Don't lead like that. Don't be the bully leader. All right? The next higher level of leadership is our example. And the highest level is servant leadership, which we see modeled in the life of the Lord Jesus. And now books are coming out and they're just saying, oh, you want to be a great leader? Be a servant leader. Guess what? It's been here all the time. All right, the servant leader loves the people that are, that are underneath their leadership, if you will. The servant leader wants the best for them. The servant leader invests in their development. The servant leader wants them to be pushed forward. The servant leader comes underneath them and lifts them to greatness. And we can be those kinds of people in the marketplace because of our God. And we can have impact when we do. So what happens when you get power? Does it change how you treat people? Does it change how you view them? Does it change how you view yourself? Remember, power can corrupt us in overt and subtle ways. You're not better than people, the people that you lead, because you have higher pay or bigger responsibility or maybe even more education. It doesn't make you better. It makes you responsible. And with that responsibility comes a stewardship and an accountability to God. And we need to exercise that with humility, knowing we will give an account to him. Perhaps the best story I can leave you with is a picture of something that I saw when I had the opportunity to visit Ruth Merillat. Uh, she and her husband, Orville, created the largest cabinet um, manufacturing company in America, Merillat Cabinets. Um, they were the first to put the hinge on the inside of the door. That was kind of their thing. So next time you open up, that's innovation was Marilot cabinets. And uh, so I had the chance to visit, and Ruth couldn't wait to show Jill, my wife, and I uh, Orville's office. Um, and it was cool, going into the CEO's office, the place of power. And when we went in, it was so beautifully done. The walls were mahogany wood with a beautiful library, bookshelves filled with, or shelves filled with books, the big mahogany desk, the employee chairs around the CEO desk. But when you walked in, you just couldn't miss the directly behind his desk taking up the entire back wall was a painting. And in that painting was the office that we were in. You could see the bookshelves on the side, the big mahogany desk, the employee chairs. But behind the desk was seated and painted into the painting a picture of the Lord Jesus. And the employee chair was Orville Merillat. You see, every day he started his job leading that company by walking into the office of power and recognizing it's the Lord Jesus who's leading this company, and I enter into leadership by sitting at his feet first. Do you think that changed how he led that company? I do. That's the picture that we need to have every day if we've been blessed with positions of responsibility for those that we lead. 
So as we wrap up this section of Christian relationship, let's remember Paul was helping these brand new believers to think differently and change some pretty deep ways of doing life and relationship. The key for them to change was their love and respect for Christ, and that's the same key that we can apply as well. Husbands, wives, children, parents, employers, employees, let me remind you, there's a lot at stake here. You see, it matters to God. It matters to the people you're leading. It matters because whether we know it or not, people are watching, and as they do, they're making decisions about our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this chance to gain wisdom in an area of life that we desperately need your wisdom in. We spend so much of our lives there in the workplace. My prayer, Lord, is that you would bless each individual member here. Meet them, Lord, exactly where they're at. Give them your perspective. Help them to seize the opportunity to worship you through their work and through their excellence, honor you and God inspire people that they might be drawn to you and decide good things about you. I pray this all in the powerful and risen name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.